The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Chapter number 29 for our text reading here this morning, the book of Genesis. This is the first book of our scriptures, Genesis chapter number 29 here this morning. As we continue through our series that we've entitled, God's at War. Uh, We've spent some time looking at many of the different things in our culture, in our world, that really vie for authority in our hearts and in our lives. And I just want to say, kind of from a pastor's perspective here this morning, um, I don't know that there's ever been a series uh, that I personally have been working through that literally has convicted my heart Uh, more than the series we're going through right now. And and if I were to be incredibly transparent with you, uh, there have been several times as I've just been studying for the sermons, as I've been just preparing my own hearts, where literally I'm just in tears as, as the Holy Spirit of God begins to remind me of areas and things in my own heart that I've allowed to be elevated above God's authority, above God's will in my own heart. And, and, and as much as maybe it's been for you, I, I know if, if nobody uh, in our audience, in our congregation has received something from this, I, I will say this, just for my own heart, it's been so convicting, it's been so challenging uh, just to be reminded from God's word and by God's spirit of things that very subtly... Uh, allow themselves to become points of authority in our lives. And, and the hard thing is, is when God brings these things to mind of really surrendering those to his lordship and allowing Christ to, to do with those idols as he would see fit. But the one thing that's been a comfort to me as I've been moving through this is the reality that I truly believe that God has my best interest and God has your best interest in mind. And I believe that regardless of what God asks us to surrender to him, I believe with all of my heart we can trust God. How many of you believe that this morning that we can trust him and that he would never ask us to surrender something that wasn't for our best and for our benefit. The theme verse for this series has been found in Ezekiel chapter number 14 verse 3. We've quoted it every week and I believe they've got this here on the screens but Ezekiel 14 verse 3 says these men have set up their idols in their heart and the reality is this each week we've looked at different areas that very subtly begin to be points of authority they are things in our culture that elevate themselves to a place of authority in our hearts and they want to set the agenda for how how we live and for how we behave. And, and over the last few weeks, we've looked at some of these different areas that can become uh, idolatristic in our lives. We've said that idolatry is when we turn, we turn something into an idol when we seek after anything smaller than Jesus to give us what only Christ can give us. So when I look for satisfaction in something else other than Jesus, that thing is beginning to become an idol in my heart. When I look for significance in something smaller than Jesus, that thing is beginning to become an idol in my heart. And so a few weeks ago, we went to the temple of pleasure and we looked at some areas, some things that try to elevate themselves to points of authority in our hearts and our lives. Uh, Two weeks ago, we went to the temple of treasure and uh, we spent some time really just looking at how possessions and money can elevate themselves in our heart and soul to a point of authority where we're trying to find our significance, our satisfaction, and our safety in our possessions and in our money rather than in our Savior. Uh, Today we're going to go to what we're going to call the temple of love. And we're going to look at some things that very quickly can become idols in our own hearts. Good things, beautiful things, God-ordained things that if we are not careful, we can allow those things to be elevated to a point of authority in our hearts and in our lives. We're going to go to a very interesting passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter number 29 is where we're going to be in a moment. Let me give you just some quick historical background and then we'll catch up with our text here uh, in verse number 20 in just a moment. But there's a gentleman by the name of Jacob. Jacob did not have a very good relationship with his father. In fact, he was often 
ostracized. I, I'm sorry, uh, his father had died uh, his, uh, in his, with his father there and, and uh, Jacob had to leave home. We see here that he finds one by the name of Rachel and he tells Rachel's father here, he says to Rachel's father, hey, I will work seven years if you'll allow your daughter to be my husband. Now at this point, as we're going to see in our text, he doesn't really know Rachel at all. In fact, as we're going to see in just a moment, all that he knows about her is that he thinks she's beautiful. And uh, he thinks she has a great figure. And that's enough to say, hey, seven years, I'll work for her hand in marriage. So let's get caught up uh, inside your service program. You'll find an outline that you can use to follow along through the message. I hope it'll be a help to you as we study the Bible together this morning. Uh, We find here Jacob, he lost the love of his mother. He had to run away. He did not have a very good relationship with God. And we're going to see what happens in his heart and his life when he seeks to make a love interest. And he elevates that love interest to a priority above that which God would have him elevate it to. So if you are physically able, as is our tradition, I'd like to invite you to stand here uh, this morning as we read our text today. Genesis chapter number 20. We'll read verses number 20 and verses number 21 here. Here's what the Bible says. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. That word love is interesting. It, it could almost, it, it has that connotation of lust. Verse 22. Uh, verse 21. And Jacob said unto Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go in unto her. This morning I want to speak on what happens When we begin to idolize good relationships in our lives. What happens when we begin to idolize good relationships in our lives? We're going to have a word of prayer and then we'll dive into our text here. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give me the words to say. Lord, I pray right even now that you would just clear and focus my mind. I pray that you would allow, Lord, what you want from your word to be communicated accurately. uh, Lord, and clearly. I pray that we would not allow anything to be elevated above, Lord, uh, you in our life. That we would allow you to hold that supreme place of authority in our hearts and in our spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Every one of us have probably had times in our lives where we have looked for love. Or we have looked for a relationship to give us something more than God designed for it to give us. You say, what's, what's the point of this sermon this morning? Let me give you a couple of things. One, I hope that this might be a reminder uh, to some of us here today of really what God has for us in the context of our relationships. It, it might encourage us to look at our relationships more biblically and more scripturally. Uh, For some other folks in this auditorium, it may be that your relationships in your marriage and in your family, and they are awesome, and and it's going really well, and I hope that this message may reveal why it's going so well. Because it's one thing to have a successful marriage, a successful family, and not know why it's successful, and not know why it's so awesome. And And I hope that this message for some of us will reveal to you why it's so good. And it'll be able to help you put a biblical definition to, to why it's working and, and why it's going well. And, and maybe there's even a group in this auditorium and it may be that, that your relationships feel really good and you're, you're, you, you feel like it's going in a good direction. And, and I would say to you, man, if it's going good and it's going awesome, it might be that God has something even more awesome. That God has something even better for your relationship than you're even experiencing right now. And you might be saying, it's good, it's, it's wonderful, it's awesome with my spouse, with my children. And God may say to you, it is, but I've got something even better for it. Our theme this morning is this, as fantastic as human love is, it can never and should never be a substitute for God's love. I'm going to say this one more time because everything else I say this morning is based on this statement. As fantastic as human love is, it can never be a substitute for 
God's love. So this morning we're going to look at two good types of love, okay? These are good things that have the possibility of becoming idols in our heart and in our lives. So here's Jacob. He's a man who's overwhelmed with love for this beautifully figured Rachel, all right? The Bible says she's beautiful and he is just overwhelmed with emotional, as we're going to see in a moment, even sexual longing for this woman. And you say, why might that be? Well, as you study Jacob's life, as you go back in the previous chapter, we'll see that Jacob's life is very empty. On a soul level, on a spirit level, he's empty. He never had his father's love. He had lost his beloved's mother's love. And he certainly had no sense of God's love and God's care. And so it created a vacuum in his soul. Because he did not have that parental love, because he did not find satisfaction and significance in a love relationship with God, it created a vacuum in his soul. And so he looks to fill this void with a relationship with a woman. The reality is, though, Jacob wasn't really in love when he comes to Laban, Rachel's father, and says he'll work for seven years. I mean, the only thing, like we said a moment ago, the only thing he knows about her at the point where he talks to Laban is that she has a lovely figure and that she was beautiful. And seven years' work, that's a significant sacrifice that he's willing to lay down on the altar of romantic. At this point, all it is is lust. He just looks and says, whatever it takes, I want that. Genesis, it's not a coincidence. How many of you have ever heard the phrase before? Uh, he worships the ground she walks on. You ever heard that statement or somebody say that statement? Man, that guy, he worships the ground he walks on. Can I, can I say this? Uh, it's not coincidental that we often use that terminology even in our current culture. You say, why? Because romantic love in our culture has been idolized. In our culture at large, there is an an elevation of romantic love above that which God says can even be healthy. That is, we look to romantic love to give us feelings of of ultimate satisfaction. and, And we long for romantic love to give us ultimate sense of significance. And God says, no, those things are reserved for my relationship with you. You can only gain those things in me. We see in Genesis chapter number 29 verse 20, And Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Notice of this. And they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. And Jacob said to Laban, notice this. Notice, notice what Jacob says to uh, this, uh, Rachel's father. He says, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled. Notice this. That I may go in unto her. Basically, Jacob says to Rachel's father, I've done my duty, I served for seven years, now I want to make love to your daughter. I mean, even in Hebrew culture, this type of statement would have been highly inappropriate and culturally unacceptable. But you kind of get a vibe for where really Jacob's focus is at. It's a, it's a focus of lust. It's a, it's a focus of elevating romantic love to something that maybe he f- can find significance in. Maybe he'll find satisfaction in this thing. Which leads us to our first thought this morning. And that is this. And as we're going to see this story played out through our message this morning. It is possible to idolize romance. Now romance is a beautiful thing. It's a God-ordained thing. But it is possible... To allow romance to be elevated in our heart. To elevate it and allow it to take a position where we now expect to find in romance something that can ultimately satisfy our soul. Something that can ultimately bring significance to our heart and life. You see, when we look to romantic love as the secret to our satisfaction and and the missing piece to make our lives feel complete. We are slipping into romantic idolatry. You see, because we are looking for romance to do for us what Christ wants to do for us. When we become over-dependent on love, when we look to some love interest for the kind of deep affirmation and acceptance that only God can provide, and, and here's, here's where it gets dangerous, when teenagers get into this type of focus or 
All of a sudden now they get to a place where now they are willing to cross proper biblical boundaries to please that romantic interest. We're beginning to spiral into an emotionally unhealthy direction. It is possible to idolize romantic love. As beautiful and as wonderful and as God-given as it is, there are individuals who allow a romantic interest to be elevated in their lives and they begin to look at that romantic interest to give them something that God says you can only find in a dynamic, personal relationship with me. So what does it look like when we're loving in an idolistic way? Fleshing it out. Let's get real practical for a moment. Because I know the tendency is to think, and I know my tendency is to think, I don't idolize the love interest in my life. I don't, I don't idolize my wife. That, that doesn't happen, right? Nobody does that. But do we? Do we begin to get to a place where we expect things from our spouse that God says, I, that is why you have a relationship with me. To get satisfaction, to get significance, to get that safety. And God says if over time, if we're not careful, we begin to transfer what we are supposed to look to for God for. And we begin to take it and now we're looking for it in a love interest, sometimes even in our spouse. Here's, here's what it begins to look like. Now, if we're going to really understand what it looks like when we're idolizing a romantic interest, we've got to compare it to our relationship, the relationship that Jesus Christ has for us. How many of you understand that Jesus Christ loves perfectly? How many of you would agree with that statement? That the way Jesus Christ loves is the proper way to love. That, that the, the best way to love is the way Jesus loves. First uh, John chapter number 4 says this. Here in his love, not that we love him, but that he loved us and gave himself a propitiation for our sins. Literally, that verse is saying this is what love really is. This is what love really looks like. It is not defined by what you're seeing in Hollywood per se. You can't go to the movies and see a perfect picture of what love actually is. Those romance novels are not giving you a, a perfectly biblical view of what love actually is. He says, you want to get a perfect picture of what love really looks like? You've got to look at Jesus Christ when he goes to the cross of Calvary and is hanging on the cross for you. It is that demonstration that gives you an accurate view on what real love, appropriate love, biblical love actually looks like. And so anything that looks different than that is on the verge of becoming an idolatristic type of love. So let me give us a, a couple of things here. If we only demonstrate love when the other person deserves it, we might have an idolatristic type of love. We might be elevating that love interest above what God says. Because we're looking to it. We're saying, I, I love you, but you better give me in return. I, I need something from this. Or else I can't love you. Uh, number two, when there's no margin for personal time with God within the relationship. You got two young people and they're so madly in love with each other. There's no, there's no relational margin for any personal time with the Lord. It might be a mark that there's an idolatry in that relationship. They have literally marginalized God to where there's no time for him. That might be a mark. It might be a sign that there's idolatry in that relationship. Number three, when we find ourselves getting upset with that person when they don't live up to our expectations... When, when we're up, oh, that person, they let me down. They frustrated me. And all of a sudden, we're getting upset with that person because they didn't fulfill our expectations. That might be a sign that there's an idolatry in that relationship. You are expecting something from them that God says you need to expect from me. You see, Jesus Christ was willing to love us expecting nothing in return. He was able to love us, here's the word we often use, unconditionally. And if you find that you can't love unconditionally, it might be a sign, it might be a mark, it might be a characteristic that the type of love that you're demonstrating is tainted with idolatry. Number four, when we allow relational activities to trump God's priorities. 
Well, after all, this is for the sake of the relationship. We're trying to better the relationship. And all of a sudden, we no longer have time for God's agenda. We no longer have time for God's will. Because after all, we're trying to cultivate this relationship. God wants you to cultivate that relationship. But at the point where those activities to cultivate the relationship are trumping God's will. That is a mark. It is a characteristic of somebody who is loving in an idolatristic manner. They are allowing that relationship to take supremacy, priority over that relationship with God. Number five. How do we know if we're loving in this idolistic way? What do we see? Number five. When we can only serve that person when they're reciprocating. That is, I can serve them, but they better serve me back. If you find that you can only serve that person when they're serving you back, you are looking to them to provide you with something that God says, no, I want to be that ultimate provider of you for. See, Jesus Christ was able to serve knowing he was not going to get anything back in return. And can I say to you, uh, husbands, if you can only love your wife because you think they're going to give something back to you, that is not loving in a manner that's consistent with the way that Jesus Christ loved you. He loved you unconditionally. He loved you without expecting anything in return. And any type of love that does not look like that is tainted with idolatry. I'm sad to say that probably in many of our relationships... There's residue of idolatry. That rather than finding full significance and satisfaction and safety in our ongoing dynamic relationship with God and that we are so overflowing with His goodness and His grace in our lives that now we are free and liberated just to love on our spouse and to give to them and allow Christ to love us through them without reciprocation, without expecting anything in return. The the problem is because we don't have that type of relationship with God, we now look to that spouse to give us what God says, I want you to find in a relationship with me. And it puts incredible amounts of pressure on a marriage relationship when you turn your spouse into an idol. Notice what Solomon says. We've been, we've been looking a lot at Solomon through this series. So here's Solomon Those of you who were here a couple weeks ago, literally, this man has 700 wives. He has 300 mistresses. A thousand. Here's a man who should have been able to find satisfaction, fulfillment in romance, sex, and marriage. If, If anybody could have found satisfaction in those things, could have found fulfillment in those areas, it would have been Solomon. And here's what he has to say. He says, whatsoever mine eye desired, I I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. I said in my heart, enjoy pleasure. But notice, behold, all is vanity. Solomon says, yeah, I got 700 wives. I've got 300 mistresses. I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy this pleasure. I'm going to find satisfaction. I'm going to find fulfillment. I'm going to find significance in a romantic relationship. And if anybody had a chance to find it in those things, Solomon did. And here's what he says about it. It's vain. You cannot find full satisfaction in romantic love. It's not there. Romantic love makes promises that it cannot fulfill. And that is why we live in a society where many, many, many of our marriages end up in divorce. Because we get married rather than expecting God to be our satisfaction, rather than expecting Christ to be our fulfillment, rather than looking to Him for significance. We find it. We get married and we put all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our uh, expectations onto a spouse. And then all of a sudden when they don't fulfill, the next best thing is to divorce. Or... What some good Christians do is they stay married. (laughs) But it's just not happening. It's not there. They're just going through the motions of something. 
They've anchored their hopes, dreams, expectations on a partner rather than recognizing that person is a human being that does not have the capacity to fully satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. As great as your spouse is and as wonderful as your husband might be and as wonderful as your wife might be, they do not possess within them the capacity to fully satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. You were created for something more you were created for Jesus rather than simply enjoying it for the blessing that God has it to be in your life and glorifying God when he gives you that romance and saying glory to God for it and thank your spouse when they surrender to being a conduit of God's grace toward you That's a proper view of this thing. But when we come to a place and we say, you better better be the one that fulfills me. And whether we say it with our words or not, if it's just the, the outcry of our heart, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. A very interesting book was written not too long ago by Ernest Becker. He actually won a Pulitzer Prize for this particular book. It was entitled, The Denial of Death. And in Ernest Becker's book, Pulitzer Prize book, The Denial of Death, he goes to try to explain the various ways people have dealt with a loss of disbelief in God. In our country, we're mostly secular. They're humanistic. People have moved away from a belief in God. And so he wrote this book because there are some psychological implications of how people have dealt with no longer believing in God because it's left some incredible holes in their soul and some psychological issues that have begun to develop when people move away from a belief in God. And so he writes this book talking about how people are dealing with this in their lives. And he goes on and he says this. He says, many now look to sex and romance to give us the transcendence and sense of meaning we used to get from our faith in God. So this is a cultural thing. There is a lot of pressure in our culture that you would look to romance, that you would look to sex, that you would look to uh, romantic interest to try to find that transcendence, to try to find that sense of meaning, to try to find that sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. And so if you're here today and you're single, there's an amount, uh, and a heavy amount of cultural pressure for you to go find fulfillment and find transcendence and find satisfaction in some love interest somewhere. And if you're married, there's a whole lot of pressure, a lot of burden that you would find it within the context of your marriage rather than looking and finding it in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Marriage is a beautiful thing ordained by God. It was a gift given to you by God. But it is not a substitute savior. Marriage was not meant to be your functional messiah. To fix everything bad in your life and and make everything, you know, just perfect. Marriage is not your savior. Jesus is. Your romantic interests are not going to rescue you from a life of disappointment. A life of unfilled expectations. Only Jesus can do that. I think they're going to throw this on the screens. But when we look to someone other than God... To complete us and define our lives. It's idolatry. It's also futile because God is the only one who can truly complete us. We are made for him. A relationship with a spouse is a wonderful and precious gift. But it was never meant to replace a relationship with God. I think he's going to, it goes on here. When you make a relationship with someone else, your God, whether it be a spouse, whether it be another individual, when we look to someone other than God to complete us and define our lives, it is idolatry. Your marriage will be marked by disappointment. There will be seasons of bitterness. When you look to someone to, to, to be your functional God, you want them to satisfy you. You want them to save you. You want them to be your source of significance. What you're really saying is, I want you to be God for me. Can I say this? Your spouse can't be your God. That's why you need Jesus. 
You need to revel in your relationship with Jesus Christ to find that significance, to find that satisfaction, to find that transcendence that your soul so desperately longs for. Now, go back to our text for just a moment. This is interesting. So here's Jacob. He sees this beautiful woman with this lovely figure. And he says, I want that. So he goes to her father says, I'll work seven years if you'll give me that. After seven years, we find here in verses number 20, he says, after I serve seven years, they seemed unto him but a few days. Verse 21, Jacob said unto Laban, her father, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go in unto her. I want to go sleep with her. I got to have her. I got to have this. I want it. It's mine. <laughs> now notice verse 23. And it came to pass in the evening that he, Laban, Rachel's father, took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. Notice this. And he went in unto her. So basically, Laban, the father-in-law, they're partying. It's a wedding. He gets drunk. And in this culture, the way you consummated a marriage here was on the wedding night. Jacob was so drunk, Laban says, I got an idea. I'm going to send the older sister, Leah, in. Now, as you read this text, you'll find that Leah was the oldest sister. In this particular culture, it was their custom that the older sister always get married first. The older sister would get married, then the following sisters could be married off. The problem was, the Bible says that Leah was unattractive. Uh, some theologians and scholars have viewed, taken what is said from the text, that she might have been cross-eyed. She did not have a figure like her younger sister Rachel. And Laban was thinking, I'm never going to be able to marry off Rachel, the good-looking one, because I got Leah and nobody wants her. So he came up with a plan. After Jacob got drunk, they had the wedding... Jacob thought he was marrying Rachel. He wakes up in the morning and there's Leah staring him in the face. One theologian said it this way, with all due respect to this woman Leah who we have much to learn from and we will learn from in a moment. When we put, like Jacob, all of our hope into lust and romance and a romantic interest in the morning, it is never quite what we were expecting. When we, like Jacob, put our hopes and our dreams and our sense for significance and satisfaction and we anchor it to a romantic interest, mark it down, that it will never deliver on that dream. While marriage and while romance within the context of marriage is a beautiful thing, a gift from God, it cannot and will not be a substitute savior. It cannot give you what Christ desires to give you in a personal relationship with him. Now, I want you to understand marriage was God's idea. God is pleased with marital love. He's pleased with romance. The problem comes when that relationship, that marriage relationship, replaces God. The key to honoring God is not to love our spouse less. Now let me say this again. The goal of this message is not for you to go out and say, well, I guess I gotta love my spouse less now. No, that is not the goal. The goal is not to walk out and say, well, if I'm gonna have a proper relationship with my spouse, I've gotta love them less than I do now. That is not the point. The point is to go out and say, rather than loving my spouse less, I'm going to leave these doors saying, I'm going to love God even more. As much as you love your spouse, as much as you love that romantic interest, as much as you care for them, God says, I want you to love me even more. You see, when we get a right relationship with God, it changes how we interact with our spouse. As fantastic as human love is, it can never be a substitute for God's love. It is possible to idolize romance. You say, what do you mean by that? It is possible to elevate romance in our hearts to where it has authority over God's will and God's uh, word for our life. How many, many of us have seen people give romance authority in their lives over what God says? 
We see teenagers who are expressing that love outside the bounds of marriage. They're giving more authority to their romantic interest than they give to God's word and what God's will has to say. And it doesn't just happen with teenagers. There are men. And rather than allowing God's word to define their purity and their sexuality, they look to find satisfaction outside the realm of God's will. Outside the realm of God's word. Thinking that somewhere out there there's satisfaction. Somewhere out there they'll find transcendence. And someone that'll make them feel like they really matter. And so there are men, there are women who look to all these other things other than Jesus to give them the satisfaction, the significance, the fulfillment that Jesus wants to be for them. See, whenever you move away from a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ, you will always create a vacuum in your soul. Because you were born to worship, you will worship something, you will idolize something, and something will take the place of that void. For very what we would call wicked people, they have their bad idols, their addictions. But for our more sophisticated people, we have have our sterile idols, socially acceptable idols. Because in our culture, it's socially acceptable to make your spouse an idol. To give your spouse more authority than God. It's totally socially acceptable. Nobody nobody gets upset with somebody who allows their, uh, their spouse to have more authority than God in their life. It's, it's okay. It's socially acceptable. But can I say this? It isn't healthy. Let's keep moving on. Not only is it possible to idolize romance, but we're going to move on here. Genesis chapter number 29. Let's go to verse 31. Maybe you've heard it said, some, one person said it this way, men use love to get sex and women use sex to get love. Both of these stereotypically male and female idolatries, and that's what they are, are dead ends. Neither of those things will get the human soul what they ultimately desire. And that is satisfaction and fulfillment that can only be gotten in a personal, dynamic, ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. So, so notice here, let's keep reading. Notice verse number 31. So... Jacob now is married to Leah. How many of you can imagine this was not a very happy relationship? Jacob got tricked into marrying what he said was an ugly woman. He's married to her. And poor Leah. Notice what happens. Verse 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Get this. Jacob hated his wife. Think about this for a moment. Jacob hated her. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Rachel didn't have any kids, but Leah had a child. And notice what the Bible says in verse 32. And Leah conceived. So Jacob did not love her. In fact, the Bible says Jacob hated her. But according to this passage, he sleeps with her. She conceives and bears a son. And she, Leah, calls his name, this is is important, Reuben. For she said, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore, my husband will love me. She names her son. Names were very significant in the Old Testament. And Leah says, I'm hated. My husband doesn't even love me. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't want to spend time with me. But in this culture, it was a very wonderful thing to bear a son. Sons were the ones that you would pass down your inheritance to. Sons were the ones that would be raised up to lead that family line. It was a very honorable and noble thing to have a firstborn son. And so when Leah saw that God had given her a son, she says in her heart, I know what I'm going to name him. I'm going to name him Reuben. Why? Because Reuben literally means, see, a son. That's what the name Reuben means. See, it's a son. And so she goes on to say, maybe now, 
maybe now Jacob will love me. Maybe now. Maybe this one Reuben, maybe he'll fix everything. The husband that I have that doesn't love me. The husband that I have that doesn't care about me. The husband that ignores me. The husband that pretends I don't exist. I'm just there to kind of be a maid. I'm just there to clean up. I'm just there to serve. I'm just there to have babies. But I, he doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't want what's best. And Leah sees it's a son and says, oh good, it's a son. Maybe now, maybe now Jacob will notice. Maybe now he'll care. Maybe now he'll love me. And in this culture, she fixed her hopes and her dreams on Reuben. He's going to fix it. He's going to make everything better. But he doesn't. Verse 33, and she conceived again and bare a son and said, because the Lord hath heard me that I was hated, he therefore given me this son also. And so I'll call his name Simeon. She thought, okay, maybe one son wasn't enough for Jacob. But maybe this time, and she names him Simeon. God hears. Maybe now I'll be loved. But alas, no. Notice verse 34. And she conceived again. And bear another son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore she called his name Levi. The word Levi means attached. And so Leah's thinking in her mind, maybe now, maybe now me and my husband can have a relationship. Maybe now we'll bond. Maybe now it'll be what I always expected. Maybe now I'll have what I always dreamed. You see, what she wanted was a relationship with her husband that she wasn't getting. And she thought, maybe my kids will fix this thing. Maybe my kids will make it better. You see, Leah's, her idolatry was a little different, but it was an idolatry nonetheless. She thought if she could just get Jacob to love her, if she could get, just get Jacob, Jacob to appreciate her a little more, if she could just bond with him, if she could just have the relationship she always dreamed about when she was a little girl, like she saw in the fairy tales. If I could just have that, my life will be better. My life will have meaning. My life will have significance. You see... Jacob looked to fulfill this satisfaction. He looked to fulfill a sense of significance and he looked for it in sex and romantic interest and, and a beautiful figure and he, he lusted after that thinking that that would satisfy. Leah was different. She looked for it in a, in a strong marital relationship, a husband that cared. I'm not asking for much. J Jacob's over there. He just wants apocalyptic sex. I just want a good family. I just want a, a husband that cares. Somebody I can bond with. And when she realized it's not happening, she starts to anchor her hopes and dreams into her children. And there are many mothers who have done this. Thinking that, you know what? My children can fix all this. Maybe my children will fix this. Relate. Once a young mother thinking that now that I have a child, maybe this will change my husband. Now that we have kids, maybe he'll finally shape up. And when that doesn't work, they start pouring their hopes and dreams into their kids. Looking to their kids to be their functional messiahs. If my kids can just grow up right, if my kids will just behave, that'll project well on me and everybody will think of how good I am. And they look to find their identity in their children. They look, they anchor their hopes into their kids. She's saying here, Reuben, now that there's Reuben, surely the Lord had looked upon my fiction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Now, he's going to fix everything. This child is going to make it all better. You see, Leah's idolatries were different. Rather than looking to the God of heaven to be her satisfaction... Rather than looking to the God of heaven to be her significance, she starts looking to family values. A happy little relationship with her husband. A little relationship, maybe the kids will make it better. And she doesn't find it. 
rather than looking to the source of significance. She looks to something smaller than Jesus. You say, are kids bad? No. Kids are a beautiful gift from God, but they are no replacement for a relationship with Jesus. You can't turn your children into functional Messiah. If you just change, if you just get all fixed, if you just get all better, you'll make me look. You'll change my identity. You'll change the way I view myself. You'll change the way I value myself. And we look to a spouse. We look to children. And we look to those things to build up our identity, to fix us, to change what we value and what's important to us. And we, and we anchor our hopes and our dreams into a spouse. We anchor our hopes and our dreams into a child thinking that if they'll just, if, if they can just do what they're supposed to, my life will be better. You have committed idolatry. I have committed idolatry. When I look to anything smaller than Jesus and I anchor my hopes and my happiness and my satisfaction to anything smaller than Jesus to give me a sense of satisfaction, to give me a sense of joy. If you convince yourself, I can only be happy if my spouse behaves. I can only have joy if my children behave. You have anchored your happiness to a source that eventually will let you down. For only Jesus can fully satisfy. Which leads us here to our last thought. It is possible to idolize family. Family is God's gift. As fathers and mothers, God has given you many responsibilities on how you should, tr- how you should interact with your family. Family is a wonderful thing. God speaks much into how you should respond as a family. But I will say this. If you are looking to your marriage, if you are looking to your children to to bolster your identity, if you need them to behave a certain way or do certain things so you can find a sense of significance, so you can be satisfied, you have turned your family into an idol. If you say to yourself, I can only be happy if they do such and such and such, you have made them an idol. And I have made them an idol. Can I say this? You are liberated from that. You can have satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. It is possible to find your significance in Jesus Christ. According to this passage, it is possible to prioritize our family relationally under the guise in the name of love that actually becomes unhealthy. You see, when we do this, it's not just unhealthy for them. When, when you create a Messiah out of your child, when you create and you allow your spouse to be your functional savior, you, you, you look to them to give you satisfaction and significance that God wants you to look to him for. You're not just, it's not just unhealthy for your soul. You're putting pressure You're putting a burden on the soul of that other person that's unhealthy for them as well. You're not just hurting yourself. Whether you realize it or not, you actually hurt your family. Your relationship with your children is a beautiful thing. And the more beautiful a thing is, the more potential it has to become an idol in your life. Notice what Jesus, this is the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter number 10 verse 37. I quote it verbatim. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's that's your savior. That's your leader. That's your Jesus. That's pretty strong. Jesus says, don't look for satisfaction. Don't look for your, I should say it this way, your ultimate satisfaction. Your ultimate sense of significance in a spouse, in a child. Look for it in the person of Jesus. This verse teaches us that there are followers of Jesus who love family more than they love Jesus Christ. That is to say, Jesus is declaring there are folks in this room and you elevate your relationship with a family member above your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That is idolatry. It's unhealthy for you and it's unhealthy for your children and your spouse. You're putting a pressure on them that they will not be able to live under. No child can bear the weight of being your Messiah. Um, I'll say this. I think it's in, your, it's in your guide. It's not that we love our families too much, okay? And I have to reiterate this. Lest somebody think, well, pastor thinks I love my family too much. There, I don't think there is a thing. You can't love your family too much. It's no such thing. We're not saying you love your family too much. It can't happen, okay? Here's what I am saying. We must love God. It, it's not that we love our families too much, but that we love God too little in relationship to them. That's the problem. We love, our, we love God too little in how we interact and how we relate to them. You can't love your children less, but you can love them differently. That's, that's the point. You, I, I could not ask any mother in here to love your children less. That'd be ridiculous. But I am saying this, you need to learn how to love your children differently. Husbands, I'm not, talk, I'm not saying love your wife less. It's not what the Bible was teaching. The Bible says love your wife, even as Christ loved the church. It's not about loving them less. It's about loving them differently. It's about loving them the way Christ loves them in that proper context, in that proper place. Notice the screens here. When we look to spouse or child to give us meaning... Hope and happiness that only God can truly give us. It will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. There will come a moment your child will fail you. There will come a moment your spouse will fail you. And it will break your heart. Notice the next screen here. No individual can bear the weight of being someone else's Messiah. It will smother them and strangle that relationship. Those type of expectations will drive away or twist and disfigure their spirit. When you make a functional Messiah out of your spouse, when you make a functional Messiah out of your child, I'm telling you what, not only does it hurt you because it twists the way you view that relationship, you are putting an expectation, you are putting a burden that they cannot thrive under. It disfigures the spirit. It drives that away. Have you ever considered the sheer pressure of expecting someone to be God for you? Now, caveat, I'm not saying that you can't have expectations for your children in your home. You need to teach them to obey. You need to teach them to do right. That's not what we're talking about right now. So do not misunderstand this. I'm not talking about not having rules and not having boundaries. That's a good thing. I'm saying this. Don't allow your children to be your functional Messiah. That's what I'm saying. Don't look to them to give you your sense of value, to give you your sense of identity, to give you your sense of how you feel. If all of your joy and all of your happiness is anchored to how your husband or how your child obeys or behaves, that's what I'm talking about now. Okay? Boundaries are good. <laughs> Rules are good. It's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about putting expectations upon your child to be your functional Messiah. That's what we're talking about. So don't, let's not confuse this thing. Have you ever considered that the sheer pressure of expecting someone to be God for you? When someone else occupies the place in your heart that God should, we hurt ourselves and more importantly, we hurt that person. No spouse or child is safe to have and hold until you put God first in that relationship with them. Guess what? Your child is not safe in your hands if they are your functional Messiah. If you are looking to them to bolster your identity, to bolster the way you feel about yourself. Your, your wife is not safe for you to possess if you cannot look to Jesus to be your ultimate source of satisfaction and significance because you will hurt them. They can't bear the weight of being your functional Messiah. That's why Jesus was given to you. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Because when my relationship with Jesus is right... He can love my spouse and he can love my children through me in a healthy way. In the way that is appropriate without making them into some type of functional Messiah. Children often feel the burden of living up to goals when the bar has been set out of reach. 
The weight of unreachable expectation will squelch the spirit of a child quicker than anything else. We've got to stop vicariously living through our kids. Well, if my kids will end up doing that and they'll end up doing that, if I can get them to do all those things, then maybe I won't feel like such a failure. Your children are not there to make you feel better. Your children are there for God. They're there so you can disciple them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're not there to bolster your identity or bolster how you feel about yourself. They're there for Jesus. Now, as you give them to Jesus, if they bring you some sort of happiness, praise God for that. If they become conduits of God's grace to you, thank God for it. Honor that God for it. It happens. But don't place upon them the mantle of messiahship. Don't place upon a spouse expectations to be your functional savior. I love this. I'm going to go, go back to this text here, verse 35. This is crazy. So Leah, she's putting her expectations. Maybe Reuben will fix this thing. Maybe now if I have the second son, oh, he'll love me again. Maybe this child will make my life better. Notice verse 35. I love this. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, notice what she says. Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. You see what's happening here? On the fourth child, Leah finally says, God, I praise you. I praise your providence. I give glory to you. I know I was looking for it in a relationship with my husband. I know I was looking to him to give me a sense of significance and satisfaction. And she says now with the name of her fourth son, I just call him Judah. Praise God for you are good. Do you see what she's doing? She's praising God and she has a husband that hates her. She's praising God and she's got a husband that's ignoring her. She's praising God with a husband that doesn't want to be around her except for some occasional sex. She says, God, though that person may have failed me, you are still good. And she praises God in the midst of her trial. And he, she calls his name Judah. Judah. This is, this is unbelievable. You say, why is this so crazy? Judah may be a name that you recognize. How many of you recognize the name Judah? For those of you who have studied your Bible, you're going to find a, a reference to Judah in Matthew chapter number 1 and verse number 2. Does anybody know what's going on? In Matthew chapter number 1, there's a whole list of names. You know why those names are there? They are the ancestors of the Messiah. The ancestors of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter number 1, Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot not Reuben, not Levi, not Simeon. And Jacob begot Judah. You see, it was in the moment where Leah said, God, you're still good. Even when my marriage isn't turning out the way I thought it should turn out. Even when my husband is not being the man that I expect him to be, nor you expect him to be. I can still come to a place where I can praise you in your providence. I can praise you in your goodness, God. And you are still good even in this awful marriage. You can still be glorified. And you can still be lifted up. And so I will name him Judah. Praise God. And it is from that seed... Literally that Yahweh, God the Father, raises up the seed of the Messiah. It was when she came and said, praise God. Praise God. She no longer began to idolize Jacob. 
No longer look to him to behave so she could have a sense of identity. So she could have a sense of value. So she could feel important. And she could have the life that she always little dreamed of. She recognized she could have everything she needed in her relationship with Jesus Christ. Can I say this? If you do not have an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ right now. And you might be saved. But you're not, you're not reveling in it. This doesn't make sense to you. Because you have not experienced the beauty of what it means to bask in the very presence and strength of God. This message is not preached to disappoint. This message is to say there's something better than looking for significance and satisfaction in marriage. You can look for it in Jesus. He's got everything you think you want. Everything you're looking to a relationship to provide. Everything you're looking for in that child to give you. Everything you're looking for in that romantic interest. God says, I've already got it. It's waiting for you in that relationship with me. This is not a message to downplay marriage or to downplay children. This is a message to elevate the name of Jesus Christ above all else. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. And it is at His name that we bow. It is His name that we look to. And it is His name that we find our significance, our satisfaction, and our security. There is no other name that can save. There is no other name that can rescue. There is no other name that can deliver. Look to the name of Jesus. Look to Him, the author and finisher of your faith, to put your hopes, your dreams, your source of significance, anchor it to him he'll never let you down that's the point of this message and it is in that type of relationship that you will finally be able to be the husband and the wife that you were meant to be it's only in the context of that type of relationship that you can be a mother that does not smother a child to be a dad that does not vicariously live through his son that does not put unhealthy pressure on a child because you expect them to be your functional messiah you can finally have a real relationship with your child where you are not looking to them to give you something in your identity in your sense of worth you can just have a relationship with them as a child. You can interact with them in a healthy way. You can have a relationship that God intended for you to have. It is impossible. It is impossible outside of a right relationship with God. So, in conclusion, what are some characteristics of a marriage and families that love each other properly in the context to their relationship with God? How do we know if we're loving people properly? Let me throw a couple things and we're wrapping up. They don't place God-like expectations on each other. Show me a marriage. They don't place God-like expectations on each other. If you're in a relationship and you're expecting your marriage to give you a source of significance or satisfaction, you're going to be let down. Number two, they regularly talk about the things of God and the Bible together. This is one of the marks of a, re- of a relationship that hasn't become idolatric. They regularly talk about the things of God. If others in your family feel uncomfortable bringing up spiritual things, you've probably not cultivated a very spiritual atmosphere in your home. What are the characteristics of a marriage that love each other properly in the context of their relationship with God? They often pray together. This is how we know if our, if our marriage is healthy. If it really is the outflow of our relationship with Christ. How do we know if that's what's happening? We pray together. If we're not often praying together, then we might have what we think is a good marriage, but it's, it's not the good marriage as God defines it. It's not the best that it could be. God has something better for you, more exciting, more wonderful, more awesome. They often have family devotions together. You see... When God is loving through you as a parent towards your child, you're regularly opening up the Bible with your children. You're having family devotions together. That's what it looks like when God is living through you in the context of your home. You consistently go to church together. Jesus Christ died for his church. He loves his church. Not this building, the people, the collective body. And the characteristics of a marriage and family that are loving God in the context of his word, they, they go to church together. Next, they sacrifice more for God than they do for each other. They sacrifice more for God than they do for each other. This is one of the marks, one of the characteristics of a healthy relationship. They can sacrifice more for God 
than they do for each other. They sacrifice more time, more energy, more finances, more resources. They are able to sacrifice more for God than for each other. Next, they each maintain margin in their lives, lives for regular alone time with God. They maintain margin in their lives for regular alone time with God. Next, they regularly think about practical ways to enhance the spiritual health of their family. Are you regularly thinking and meditating on spiritual ways to enhance the spiritual health of your marriage and family? Next, they don't allow less important activities to trump God's activities for their family. See, when, you're, when, you're, when your family is healthy and when God is loving your family through you, we're not going to allow less important activities to trump God's activities. He's got the priority. What does it look like when a marriage and a family are loving each other properly within their context of their relationship with God? They regularly encourage their spouse and children in practical spiritual disciplines. They're encouraging their spouse. They're encouraging their children in spiritual disciplines, reading their Bible, personal times in prayer, meditation, memorizing the scripture. They're They're encouraging that because that's how Christ would love your family through you. That's how he would do it. If these things don't exist in your marriage and family, there's a good chance maybe there's, a, there's, there's hints of idolatry there. And can I say this? It's okay. If you're here tonight, here this morning, and you feel like, ah, maybe there is idolatry in my family. Maybe I'm putting undue expectations on my children or on my spouse. Can I say this? Praise God for his wonderful mercy. Amen. Because we've all done this. We've all been here. And God says there's mercy for you. And there's grace to give you strength to allow his spirit to work through you in the days ahead. So here's our big idea. Don't love others less. That's not the point. Don't love others less. That's not what we're, no, we're not saying. Don't, we're not saying love your child less, love your spouse less. Okay, don't love others less. Let's just say this. Love God more. That's the point. Love God more. Love God and allow God to love your family, love your spouse, love your children through you. And he'll always do it in a healthy, proper manner that won't lead you to cross unhealthy boundaries. Shall we pray?